Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at All right, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, great. Everybody else is not doing well. Okay, that's fine. Um, my name is Josh. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the District Church, for those of you who don't know me. Um, and if you were with us last week as we started this gospel-formed series, one thing I did not announce is I am going to be preaching this entire series, so you are stuck with me. Um, Dwayne, as he prayed, as well as he announced, um, are, they are waiting. Well, not Dwayne. Kelsey is really waiting that baby to come out, Shepard. Um, Dwayne's just a byproduct of it. Um, I know he wants to play softball, so he's waiting for that to come out. Um, but uh, we set up um, a system kind of based on him being free and to be able to shepherd our people. And so uh, we thought it'd be wise for him to be able to be at home, um, taking care of his family uh, during the month of June, as well as into July, waiting for Shepherd to come. Uh, so that's why you guys got me. Um, so just wanted to announce that if you guys are like, where the heck is Dwayne? Why is he on the screen? This why, okay? Um, so before we start, I do want to say happy Father's Day to the dads in here. Uh, happy Father's Day to my dad who's watching, those dads who are watching. Um, we are thankful for you. Uh, like Dwayne says as well, um, I too want to echo, uh, we are rejoicing for those fathers who are good and faithful fathers. Um, and then we are mourning uh, those who see this day as not so happy or see this day as not one to rejoice in uh, because of the father they had or one that has passed away. Um, and so we, alongside you, are mourning in this time as well. Um, so we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. Um, and so I just want to echo that, uh, what Dwayne said. Um, this morning as we continue this series, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 2. What we're going to be taking a look at um, is what it means to be uh, a gospel form believer modeled after Christ. So last week we took a look at the most important message, uh, the foundation for our gospel formation, which is the message of Jesus Christ, right? That he came, he lived a life, um, he died a death we so rightly deserve, he rose from the grave three days later, and in his resurrection sealed our adoption as children. He sealed our justification before the Lord. Um, and so we celebrated that message, and we understand that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that message of the gospel is of first importance. Now, as we move into this next part of gospel formation, we're going to take a look at the model of gospel formation. So if the message is central to all things that we do, the model, Jesus Christ, must also be central to how we live our lives and how we go about sharing the light of the gospel in a dark and dying world. In his humility, in his service, in his abiding in the Father, in Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, this should be a model in which we pursue. And there are plenty more of examples that we find throughout the Old and New Testament, as John tells us at the end of his book. If, if we were to write all the things that Jesus did, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain it. But we have to look first at this model. 
So this morning, we're going to take a look at Philippians 2. Now, I'm going to walk through this passage uh, right here. We'll just read it, um, not like last week. We're not going to read it all together. But I'm going to read it, and then what I'm going to do is kind of create a uh, sandwich, if you will. The middle part of the passage is going to be our meat and our sustenance. And then the first and the latter half of this passage will be kind of our bread, what, what is holding this together, right? And, and I hope you see as we walk through that why this is the way it is. But I want you to see that in this model of Christ, this is what we pursue. This is the life we are trying to live. I also want to set it up a little bit of how my mind works. So I'm type A. I like notes. I like points. If any of you are in here with a pen and paper, awesome. My heart gets stirred for that. So I'm also going to explain to you how we're going to break this down and how we're going to take a look at it. Because what's interesting when we look at Philippians 2 and we look at the model of Jesus, what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and talk about Jesus' miracles of feeding the 5,000. He doesn't go back to Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't go back to Jesus telling a storm to stop. All these things are helpful and encouraging when we look at the character and nature of Jesus. But what he does here in Philippians 2 is he highlights three things about Christ's life and death. He highlights his divinity or his divine nature. He highlights his humiliation. And he highlights his exaltation. So this is what we're going to take a look at today. His divinity, his humiliation, his exaltation, and then I want to answer the question at the end, how should this change our lives? If all of this is true, how should it change our lives? So let's open up with Philippians 2 and see what Paul has to say in totality. Starting in verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good and pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless this time, and then we'll get going this morning. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that we have a picture of humility and service. We have a beautiful picture of the union with Christ in this passage and what it means for the believer who is united to Him. Lord, help this truth grow our affections for You this morning so that when we talk about the model in which we pursue, we're reminded of this truth here in this passage and that we would live in such a way that brings glory to Your name, joy into our own lives, And Lord, shines the light of the gospel in dark places where you have sent us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite forms of music um, is, uh, specifically when it comes to praise and worship, is the hymns. I'm thankful that, Jordan, you guys sang Great is Thy Faithfulness this morning. Um, I, I, I loved it. The fact that we sang Come Thou Fount last week, I I loved that. That's actually my favorite hymn of all time. Um, But when it comes to hymns, my my affection is stirred for the Lord. Whether it is modern day hymns or old classic hymns, I I, I love to listen to them. Um, One of the favorite songs I've got right now on Spotify, if you had this happen to you last year, showed you like what song you listened to the most. Well, that hymn for me was City of Light. And it's yet not I, but Christ in me. And we sing that song. Um, It's one of my favorites. So when I opened this passage this week, what I was amazed to find is that the early church actually had a hymn of their own. And it's written right here in Philippians 2. Verses 6 through 11 is actually one of the first recorded hymns that we have that the early church would have sang. Scholars believe that this hymn wasn't actually written by Paul, but that it was in fact quoted from what the early church would have sung out. And the beauty of Paul's placement in this passage is not to give his readers some abstract theology or to look at first century worship. It is placed there to reveal to us the mind of Christ that we now have in him as believers and that we might see this and model our lives after it. And so we see this hymn. It begins with the the points that I brought up. It begins with his divinity. It praises the divine nature of Christ. It continues by praising his selfless selfless humiliation. And it ends with the praise of his exalted name. So this is a beautiful hymn that we get to walk through this morning. This is that meat that I was saying in which we should fix our eyes on. So let's take a a look at this first part of this hymn, Jesus' divine nature. We see in verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there's this theory going around um, right now, as well as for um, many of years, that Jesus never truly made the claim that he was fully God. The theory is that early Christianity started off with Jesus being a teacher of just peace and kindness. 
and love. That he never said, and his original hearers would have never heard him say, that he was fully God. And as time went on, as Jesus' folklore and his name began to build, his stories became embellished, and he became bigger than he actually was in his original time, eventually becoming divine and being placed in the seat of God himself. So this theory is that Jesus never claimed that he was actually God. The theory also says that his believers never would have heard him say that he was God, or his disciples would have never heard him preach and make the claim that he was God himself. Yet here's the problem with this theory. It's twofold. This hymn here would have been dated back to the early church, the beginning church. So Paul, writing 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death, would have been quoting something that would have been sung right after Jesus would have ascended. So the passing time in which this theory claims that Jesus' life and, and his ministry became so embellished that he became God, this time couldn't have made these stories bigger because it was something that the early church already believed and already sang about. Secondly, the Bible is clear and consistent that Jesus Christ is God. We see glimpses of this in the Old Testament when man is being formed, and it says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality there of the Godhead. John 1 echoes what Moses wrote in Genesis 1 when he says, in the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God. And here in verse 6, Paul begins this teaching of Jesus' divine nature by saying, being in the form of God. Now here, this form in the Greek is the word morphe. It implies that there is an internal as well as an external form. Now there's another Greek word that would just talk about the external part of how somebody looked, but this one talks about the essence of that formed being. It refers to the inward and outward appearance. Morphe here means the essence of something, those qualities that make something what it is. And the beauty of this phrase in the Greek is that it stays in the imperfect, which means that God being in the form, or Jesus being in the form of God also became human. He never stopped being God, but he also became fully man. As Dwayne's, one of Dwayne's favorite phrases, which actually I'm surprised that he doesn't preach on a little bit more, is this theological term, the hypostatic union, which means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here's why this is important for us today. Because if you undermine the deity of Christ and make him merely a good teacher or merely a good prophet, you render Christianity powerless. John Stott goes on to say something very similar in his book, Biblical Christianity. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their entire lives to him. 
but nobody ever had a moderate reaction to him. Do you hear the tension in what John Stott is saying? Because here in America, we have this problem. We like Jesus. But John Stott is saying you can't like Jesus and not be changed. No one has ever liked Jesus who ever knew who he was. You can't be moderate about Jesus. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis on this same topic says that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, and that's how you have to treat him. And if he is God, then everything in your life needs to be changed. Everything in your life needs to revolve around him and the model in which you live is pursuing and reflecting him. Furthermore, we see in verse 6 that Jesus had equality with God. Meaning, in his pre-incarnation, before he put on human flesh, he shared the fullness of God's deity and the fullness of God's nature. Like we saw last week in the, oh, what did we look at? The um, survey that asked the question, is God a created, first created being? And 71% came back and said they agreed. This is incorrect. Jesus is not a created being. He has always been, will always be, and He is the full nature of who God is. And He must never be placed in any category below or less than God. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all sharing the same nature, the same authority, and the same glory. So let's take a look at how in this second part of the hymn we see Christ's humiliation come. There are two forms of humiliation we see here in verses 6-8. through eight, When Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being formed in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the two forms that we see in this passage are the incarnation, Christ putting on flesh, and the crucifixion. So let's take a look at the first one. When Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here, this word grasp, again, is a Greek word that you only find here in this passage once in the New Testament. And it means to take hold of a prize or something that is greatly desired. And it's used to speak of the attitude of Christ towards the perfect will and redemptive plan of God the Father. As H.B. Charles Jr. goes on to say about this passage, Jesus had every privilege of deity. It belonged to Him because He was God. Yet He did not hold on to the glory of His deity like a robber clutching something He just stole. Christ, who had every reason to put His rights first, did not. The first form of humiliation that we see in Jesus is that by His very nature and stature, He was God, and yet He emptied Himself and became nothing when He came to earth and put on flesh. G. Campbell Morgan goes on to say that He was the God-man, 
not God indwelling man, of such there has been many, not a man defied, of such there has been none save the mists of pagan systems of thought, but God and man, combining in one personality the two natures, a perpetual enigma and mystery, baffling the possibility of explanation. And here I am trying to explain it to you. <laughs> Christ not only made himself nothing by becoming a man, but he went even further in his role in which he had here on earth. Look at verse 7 again. Paul says, by taking the form of a servant. Do you realize that Christ could have came and been whatever he wanted? The creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things, could have came in the flesh of a king, of a ruler, or whatever he wanted. But what he did was that he lowered himself to the role of a servant. What a picture of humility. Because if we're honest, if we're put in that place as, as sinful creatures, if we're put in that place given whatever we wanted, what would we choose? We wouldn't choose the role of a servant. We wouldn't choose the, the role of being put to death, even death on the cross. And how do I know this? Because in our state, even now, Though we are not equal to God, we count it something to grasp. You understand that was the, one of the biggest issues we find in Genesis 3. In the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. We do this anytime we say, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to do what feels good anyways. Yet Christ having equality with God, didn't count it as something to hold on to. But he'd emptied himself in the form of a servant. The second affirmation of Christ's humiliation is the cross. In submission and sacrifice, Christ went to the cross. You see this submission in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He also goes on to say in John 6, where I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus' submission to the will of God is not some divine child abuse. It's not something where He's thrown out of heaven because He did something wrong and now God is punishing Him. Jesus being fully God in the Trinity was a part of this plan of redemption and chose to leave that divine love that he had with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father in order to be a sacrifice for our sins and to redeem us and bring us into the family of God. This was no kicking out of heaven. This is Jesus being a part of this plan because he is fully God. Again, H.B. Charles goes on to say, the crucifixion was not just an execution. It was not it was not just an execution, but it was torture. When we see in verse 8 that it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, it declares the totality of Christ's obedience. But when it goes on to say even death on a cross, it declares the extent of his obedience. Earth has no darker sin. History has no blacker page. Humanity has no fouler spot than the Savior's crucifixion on the cross. And yet, we see in Hebrews 12 too, 
It says that Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who with a joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising shame and is sealed or seated at the right hand of God. Do you hear that beauty? That even though this was torture, Jesus with joy set before Him endured the cross because He knew what it would accomplish in sealing the election of sons and daughters back into the family of God. This leads to the last part of this hymn that is sung. It's Christ's exaltation. We read in verses 6-8 through eight the humiliation of Christ, but in verses 9-11 through 11, we see the exaltation of Christ transitioning with this word, therefore. So if any teachers are in here, what do we do when we see the word therefore? We have to ask the question, what is therefore? Right? What is therefore therefore? This therefore signifies that what is about to be said is based on what we just covered. So because the second person of the Trinity humiliated Himself by becoming a man and being crucified on the cross, God highly exalted Him. And that's beautiful. Because if we end with the cross, we don't have the full story. The cross is not the end of Jesus' life. That's why we celebrate Easter. That He was resurrected and then He ascended 40 days later. Good Friday is a good day because our sins go to the cross with Him as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is a beautiful truth that we celebrate on Good Friday. But as we saw last week, if Christ did not resurrect, then our sealing as sons and daughters of God, our justification before God does not happen. And Christ is just merely another martyr. And furthermore, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, our lives are to be pitied more than any other man. The cross is not the end of the story. Christ is resurrected and God exalts Him highly. God lifts Him above everything to its highest, highest place, a position of supreme authority and majesty. In the humiliation of Christ, He was fully compensated by God. In fact, it was totally reversed. Hear this. Verse 6 shows us that He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But in verse 9, it says that God highly exalted him. Verse 7 says that he emptied himself, but verse 9 says that God has given him the name above every name. Verse 7 says that he took the form of a servant, but verse 10 says that every knee shall bow at his name. Verse 8 says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, but verse 11 says that every tongue shall confess his name as Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus is no mere baby in a manger or great teacher or mighty prophet or miracle worker or some religious martyr. This is the God who we worship, serve, trust, exalt, who is externally worthy of his exclusive sovereign name, his lordship. He is worthy of our universal worship. And in John 17, we see that Jesus prays, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in the exaltation that we read in this hymn, God answers that prayer. The Father highly exalts Jesus Christ. And here we see the recorded present reality and future realization of the exaltation of Christ. And I wish I could dive way more into that because it's, it is a beautiful truth, but we don't have time. I already preached long enough, so we need to keep going. So here is Christ's divinity. Here is his humiliation and here his exaltation in this hymn. So what I want to do is I want to answer the question, if this is all true, which we believe it is true, I wouldn't be standing here preaching it to you. How should this truth change our minds to model Christ? Well, verse 5 is that hinge. Verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's this beautiful doctrine that we see here in this passage, and it's called the union with Christ. Union with Christ is a powerful statement. Paul would just as equally say, I want you to be encouraged. And how can you not be encouraged from the reality of being united with God the Son? Being united with this Christ. What a truth that we have. If you have any encouragement, brothers and sisters in here, it starts from this that we are united with Christ. Paul's thoughts and his writings are governed by this very truth. As we read in Galatians 2, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. We see in Romans 8, in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. In Romans again, in Christ, whom and what shall we fear? What a beautiful reality that we have united in Christ. All the blessings of Christ come to us because He has united Himself to us so that all that He is, hear this, all that He has, all that He has procured, all of His promises, and all that He will deliver comes to us in this reality of being united to Him. And our union with Christ being that foundation then flows into Christian unity, our Christian example in this world, and then our Christian hope. So I want to break that down real quick for you. Our Christian unity, our Christian example, and our Christian hope. You see in verse 12, or you see in verse 1 through 4, sorry, when it comes to Christian unity, what we see is Paul's encouragement to the church at Philippi. 
He says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What a joy. What a joy it would be if our church would be marked by these verses. What would it look like if the district church in their being united to Christ lived out these verses in unity with each other? A unity based on doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. A unity that seeks the interests of others just as much as we seek our own interests. A unity that lives in humble exaltation of Christ and that that humility then flows out to one another who follow Christ, humbling themselves in service. Even as Jesus says, by bearing our own cross. You see, we hear this expression that we are to bear our own cross, and it, it is true. Jesus said, if you are to be my disciples, you must bear the cross. But oftentimes nowadays, we see this as a joke, or we say this just as a phrase, and we don't take it as serious as it would have been translated here in the early century. Oftentimes we joke about, oh, this horrible toothache or my mother or father-in-law are in town, this is the cross I have to bear. But in the first century, you didn't make jokes about the cross. In the first century, crucifixion was so awful that parents had handbooks that were written in order for them to re responsibly share to their children what this looked like. They weren't supposed to show a crucifixion to their children. If there was a crucifixion site, they were to take their families around it. You no more joked about the crucifixion in the ancient world than you could joke about the Holocaust today. It's unthinkable. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us as followers of him, unless you take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. So taking up our cross in today's context, it might not look like we're going to the cross and being crucified. But what it means for us today is putting to death our own self-interests. The interests of self and being able to put others before us. And as we do that, we come under the lordship of God and we obey his commandments as his as this heavenly father calls us to so I ask that question again what would our church look like if we lived out this reality if we lived out a reality that sought the interests of others who did not do anything out of conceit who bared a cross where we put to death our own self-interest who live in humble service to one another. This is what union in Christ flows out to as we live in Christian unity with the church around us. And this even extends to believers outside of the district church. 
But I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us because we're in here today. This is what I hope our church strives to be like. Union with Christ also leads to a Christian example to the world around us. We saw in verses 12 through 18 that Paul calls us to a way of living that ends with this, among whom you shine as lights in a dark world. Tim Keller has a great sermon on the incarnation of Christ, and I would encourage you to look it up and read it. It it really challenged me this week. But in it, he explains why Christianity is the only religion that cares about both the spiritual and the physical. He says, God is the only God in the world where matter matters. And because of this truth, we just went over. Because of the truth that we talked about of Christ becoming a servant and dying on a cross and humbling himself, We also saw the truth that he was fully God and fully man. These truths have application for how we live in this world today. This reality that we live in because of the gospel of Christ means that when we live out of this truth, we need to care for both the physical and the spiritual around us. We need to care about the spiritual well-being of those God has placed in our sphere of influence, but we also need to care about the physical well-being of others. It's not one or the other. And where we get it wrong is when we elevate one over the other. Apart from the gospel, we can't keep both of the physical and spiritual together. Only in Jesus can we as believers say that salvation alone is our only hope And the betterment of those around us is important to strive after. This is what Jesus came to do, did he not? He came to save and redeem souls, but he also came to give us a challenge to go and make disciples and preach and show the gospel and shine the light of the gospel into dark places. The physical and the spiritual are both important in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the model in which he called us to live. Because only Christians can be concerned about the poor and the marginalized and those not being protected as they are about seeing someone be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a both and for us. It's not one or the other. Tim Keller goes on to say, this quote that really, really resonated with me, probably because of some frustrating conversations I had this week, but that's not, that doesn't need to be shared here. Um, He says, if you're not able to see that it is just as important for us to be fighting as Christians for poverty and justice as we do for heresy and incorrect doctrine, we need our minds changed because the mind of Christ given to us is both. I want to say that again. If you are not able to see that it is just as important for us to be fighting as Christians for poverty and justice as we do heresy and incorrect doctrine, we need our minds changed because the mind of Christ gives us both. And I know that we've talked a lot about social justice and radical injustice recently, or racial injustice recently, and it is right that we do. And I think that we need to get better at recognizing these injustices around us, like race, but also where we show injustice to gender, 
or even a big one that keeps being brought up in a fight against race is abortion. We should be fighting for all of these things. As believers, we should be stepping into these dark places, not placing one over the other. And it is specifically because of our union with Christ that we live out these we live in these areas where we bring the light of the gospel into the darkness. It is not just about trying to save someone. The gospel is important, but the Bible doesn't stop there. James tells us that in order for us to show that we believe in the gospel, we must live it out. Faith without works is dead. I'm sorry for yelling. But this is our reality. Shining light and fighting for the poor and the marginalized. Man, just standing up for another human being because they are made in the image of God. This extends to injustices all around us. And we as believers should be praying that Christ would reveal to us where we are blind or where we are not paying attention. This reality helps us fight for better systems for both widows and orphans to those who are abused. It's not just about race. This is important, yes, but it's also about, like I said, abortion. It's also about other systems that have been broken down because of sin and because people have used their power and abused it. There are countless areas where myself included needs to get better at seeing these physical realities that we need to step into as believers. And only then do we truly become cities set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Only then do we become salt in this world. Only then can the light of the gospel be shine in dark places is when we live out our reality of our union with Christ I would encourage you, maybe take some time this week to look up men and women in history who have been transformed by the gospel, that they don't just sit on their hands, but they go and do. Men like William Wilberforce, or Francis Grimke, or Thomas Johnson, women like Elizabeth Elliot, or Amy Wilson Carmichael, or Sojourner Truth, these men and women who have been formed and shaped by the gospel, go and pursue bringing this light into a dark world. And the reason that we keep harping on this is because for us, this is a discipleship issue. This is a discipleship issue within this community in our church that we need to, as leaders, get better at discipling you on being able to recognize where we need to step into dark places so that the world around us can see the light of the gospel and that you guys can be encouraged and empowered and not be afraid to enter in to these places as believers in Christ. So our union with Christ should lead to us bringing the gospel in dark places, our Christian example. And then finally, our union with Christ should lead us to Christian hope. Why do we have hope? Because of our union with Christ. Look at verse 6 through 8 one more time. 
Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being formed, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have hope because Jesus was fully man and fully God. And in this truth, we see that he understands us. When you read that passage, I want you to see that him being fully God and fully man means that he understands you. It, yes, it's a collective us, but I want to make it personal. He understands you. He knows what you're going through, and he promises to supply all that you need today. Brother, sister, are you feeling weary? Are you feeling tired? Discouraged? He understands that. He understands you. Run to Him. Cast all your burdens on Him because He cares for you. And He understands. The reality of the union with Christ means that we don't have some far-off deity who's telling you to deal with this yourself but we have an empathetic high priest who understands all that we are going through. Just look at these examples. Have you been betrayed before? So has Christ. Have you had a prayer turned down? So has Christ. He's been here. He understands. The list can go on and on and on. We have an empathetic high priest. You can go to Him. In fact, he tells you to go to Him. This is a verse that I've clung to this last couple of weeks, but it's found in Matthew 28-30 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give your souls rest. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. If you are feeling weary and discouraged, find hope in this union with Christ. That you can run to Him. And not just you can run to Him, He draws near to you. Psalms 37 shows us that He is near to the brokenhearted. So go to Him. Because He is not a God who is ready to cast you out, but a God like we see in the Father in the story of the prodigal son who is running with open arms ready to comfort and give you a big hug. Go to him. So I'm going to close this morning. And we're going to close the same way we have been able to close now the last couple of weeks in communion. And in communion what we do is we celebrate this beautiful reality of our union with Christ. You see, our need because of sin was to be reconciled to God. But because of Christ's life, His death that we so rightly deserved, and Him being raised from the grave, we now have this beautiful reality that we are united to God in Christ. That we are sons and daughters of God because of Christ. 
And we get to celebrate this reality daily as believers. But every Sunday, when we're able to gather, we get to celebrate it together. (laughs) Underneath your seats, you'll find the bread and the juice, the communion cups that we'll partake with. (laughs) But here, in this communion, we have a picture of this amazing grace that Christ would humble Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sins. That He would take on the wrath of God in our place and die on our behalf and raise from the grave, sealing that union that we have as sons and daughters. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 here, and then we're going to celebrate the reality that we now live in. Paul writes this, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us proclaim this reality that we live in in the union of Christ and celebrate together. I don't know. Uh, Let me pray and close this out and then we'll continue to worship this morning. Lord, thank You for the example that you give to us and the humiliation and the exaltation and the divinity of Christ who did not count equality a thing to hold on to, to be grasped, but emptied himself, putting on human flesh. He became a servant and died on the cross. Lord, thank you for this beautiful truth that we have And Lord, help it stir our affections to be able to live in light of this union that we are in. Help it to bring unity within this church. Help us to be a church marked by humility and service. Help us to be a church that goes and is an example to the world where we shine the light of the gospel in dark places. And that we care both about the physical and the spiritual. Because you cared about both physical and spiritual by coming as a man, but being fully God. And Lord, if there are anybody who are in here that is weary, tired, discouraged, Lord, may they run to you to be comforted, to be strengthened, and to find rest. Thank you for this beautiful truth of this union with Christ that we now have. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church. At